Hey, podcast listeners. I'm excited to announce the launch of Somli, a direct-to-consumer marketplace for artisan Texas wine. If you're a Texas winery, claim your free winery page today. Soon you'll be able to list all of your wines and club memberships for wine lovers to purchase on Somli.com. If you're a wine consumer like me, search for your favorite local wineries on Somli and give them a great review. Please join me in spreading the word and helping folks discover the Texas wine industry. And follow at Somli.wine on Instagram for the latest updates. Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 44. I had such a great time chatting with Jen Beckman. You may know her from one of the Hill Country wineries where she worked before opening her own tasting spot in downtown San Antonio's Hemisphere Park. She's one of the most enthusiastic Texas wine advocates I know, and I'm excited for you to hear what she has to say. First, I'll review some Texas wine news that you can use. Whether you're a regular listener or joining in for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. On June the 5th, I'll be leading a winemaker panel and unveiling the top five Texas wines I've tasted in 2022 at the Wine and Food Foundation's VIP event before the Toast of Texas at Star Hill Ranch. And today, I'm excited to unveil the wineries that are going to be a part of that VIP event. These are the makers of my top five wines. And this is the lineup for my winemaker panel. Drumroll, please. Dave Riley from Dukeman Family Winery. Susan Johnson from Texas Heritage Vineyards. Randy Hester from CL Buteau. Benedict Ryan from Coleman Cellars. And Ray Wilson from La Valentia. You'll have to wait just a bit longer to find out the specific wines I picked. There are still a few tickets left for the VIP event that's for members of Wine and Food Foundation. That will be a seated tasting with the folks I just mentioned participating on the panel that I'll moderate. And there are plenty of tickets still available for the main event. It's the Sip and Stroll style event, and you'll get wine samples from a couple dozen of Texas's best wineries. You'll be able to stop and chat with the winemakers, enjoy some great food, And you'll even have the opportunity to purchase the wines that are poured that day, thanks to event sponsor HEB. So get your tickets now, and you can use the code SHELLY, that's S-H-E-L-L-Y, for $10 off the ticket price at every level. I can't wait to see you there. Tastingtable.com recently named the top 20 wine bars in the nation. Two Texas wine bars were included, Times 10 Cellars in Dallas and San Antonio's High Street Wine Company. I thought I'd take a look at their wine lists and see what Texas wines they're pouring. High Street has two Texas wines on its impressive list, the William Chris Vineyards Roussan and the Southhold Farm and Cellar Barbera Blend from Robert Clay Vineyard. It's called High Speed Low Drag. At times 10, there are three Texas white wines, the Messina Hoff Moscato, Messina Hoff Gewurztraminer, and the McPherson Viognier. They also have the Dukeman family winery Canto Felice, which is a lightly sweet red wine, and then a Tempranillo cab blend from Cathedral Mountain Vineyards in Alpine, which is near Fort Davis. 
The folks at Times 10 used to own that vineyard, but they do not anymore. They've sold it to a neighbor. There's a new place in historic downtown Lockhart, and it's focused on two of my favorite things, wine and books. Best Little Wine and Books is described as a boutique, a neighborhood wine bar, and a bottle shop. This is a project by Nickel City owner Travis Tober and Smallier K. Askins. A press release states that the new business will serve a wide range of classic to natural wines, and the wine list focuses on female, minority-owned, and environmental winemaking pioneers. Guests can enjoy a glass from the rotating list in the tasting room or purchase retail bottles to open and consume on site or take to go. Their Instagram account features some of their Texas wines, including the Austin Winery and CL Buto. I also see some super nerdy wine books, and I'm here for it. If you're looking for even more Texas wine content in podcast form, you might want to check out Viticulture Podcast, produced by Chris Missick, a winemaker in the Finger Lakes region of New York. Chris came to Texas back in January and attended the Hill Country Winery Symposium. While he was here, he recorded two episodes about Texas wine. His episode 38 includes interviews with January Weesey of Texas Hill Country Wineries, Cliff Bingham of Bingham Family Vineyards, and Michael McClendon of Sage's Vintage. Then in episode 39, Chris interviews Chris Brendret of William Chris Vineyards. On Viticulture Podcast, Chris has a really great approach to learning about the Texas wine industry, and his winemaking background, I think, really adds a lot to his interviews. So find Viticulture Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Wesley Cable has just started a new podcast about all things wine, and it's called Obsessed with Wine. He invited me to come on his show to talk about Texas wine, and it will be released on April 30th. Let's just say that I prefer to be the one asking the questions, but one thing that made the conversation with Wesley fun is that he had ordered some Texas wine in advance of our interview. He got a three-pack from Eden Hill Vineyards, and it was great to hear his impressions of his first Texas wines. Thanks for the opportunity, Wesley. Obsessed with Wine podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts as well. The ongoing drought continues to be critical throughout much of Texas. This week on Facebook, Bear Vineyards in San Saba County posted the following note. They said, as April closes out this weekend, Texas will most likely break another century-long drought record for the month. Last month was the driest March in 128 years. Fire bans will continue and animal migrations will stall. The ag and farming industries are holding out hope for May like last year when we got 13 inches of rain in 31 days. It's dire straits here for plants and animals alike. As grape farmers, we are lucky to have irrigation that could supply the meager needs of mature vines, but the overall health of ground cover and vineyard-friendly insects is pretty bad. I recently had my first article published in the Psalm TV online magazine. I had pitched several Texas wine stories to the editors of Psalm TV, and the one they selected is about the Texas High Plains. They selected a rather ominous-looking photo with dark clouds approaching a vineyard, as well as the title, Prospects and Perils Facing the Texas High Plains AVA Wine Production. In the article, I've included some great photos and quotes from Dr. Vijay Reddy of Reddy Vineyards, and I also interviewed and included quotes from Michael Mitrioni, who with his wife, Rossanne, started growing grapes in the High Plains just within the past few years. 
please check out the article and let me know what you think. I'm hoping that Psalm TV will want to continue publishing additional Texas wine articles. Find links to all of these stories in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. Today, I want to ask you to tell a Texas wine-loving friend about this podcast. And I want to say thank you to three loyal podcast listeners who have shared the podcast on Facebook. The best way for this podcast to grow is for listeners to tell their friends. So thank you to John Harvey, Neil Addy, and Bill Perry for sharing the podcast with their social networks and posting about it in the Texas Wine Facebook groups. I love hearing what topics and interviews really resonate with you. Of course, Instagram works too. Cheers, y'all. Jen Beckman is owner of Rerooted 210, a wine bar in San Antonio's Hemisphere Park. She's a certified sommelier and holds the very impressive certified wine educator title. If you've been following Texas wine for a while, you may know Jen from her time at one of several Texas wineries where she's worked to deliver wine education and a great customer experience. Rerooted 210 has been getting impressive press coverage, including being named one of San Antonio's essential women-owned restaurants and bars. Here's our conversation. You have a long history in Texas wine prior to arriving in San Antonio and opening Rerooted 210. So why don't you take us back to the beginning and tell us um, where it started for you in Texas wine? Yeah, um, (laughs) so it's kind of a funny story. Uh, of course, there was a boy involved, and uh, I was living in Chicago and lived in Chicago for the better part of 16 years, uh, working as a sommelier. I worked in the wine industry, both on the restaurant and on the retail wine buying side. And I came to Texas uh, to, you know, my husband and I had just been engaged and decided to uh, move down here. He was stationed here for the military. Uh, we didn't know that we would be here for very long. So we lived uh, at the time in Horseshoe Bay. And I'll absolutely admit over and over again, you know, my first impression of Texas wine was there's absolutely no why, no way that Texas is making great wine. And uh, I went out to a handful of wineries and came back and I was like, yeah, no, it's, I don't think it's great. (laughs) So I was ready to write off an industry. And I I happened completely by accident to pick up a flyer uh, from Parasos Vineyards up in Burnett, and uh, I saw everything that they were growing listed on this flyer was exactly what I was hoping to find more of in Texas. I kept asking over and over again, why aren't these varieties here? Uh, So I called them up, and uh, Seth and Laura, if you haven't met them, it's an absolute must trip up to Burnett. They're wonderful people. Uh, they have five children, and uh, Laura answers the phone on the tractor with a baby on her hip. And she says to me, you know, we're just a little family place. We're not even open. We only open our doors if the kids aren't at soccer. And uh, we just start chit-chatting. And uh, one thing led to the next, and they said, why don't you come out to the winery on on Sunday and see what we're doing, and let's talk. So I did. And the first wine that I absolutely fell in love with in Texas was the Parasos Vineyards Alianico. Uh, this was a wine that just literally blew me away. I was astounded that that quality could not only be coming out of Texas, but a state grown as well. 
Uh, so I, you know, long story short, I started working with Seth and Laura and uh, helping them put together marketing plans and distribution networks and uh, things like wine clubs and opening their doors on days when the kids weren't at soccer and things like that. And one winery led to another. Uh, it just sort of followed with me. It was a really interesting place in Texas back in 2009. You know, we we did an event at the winery uh, this Wednesday and we reminded people that just that that short distance ago, uh, you know, many of the wineries that I would put in my top 10 equality were either in their infancy or not even open yet. So it was it was a really exciting time to join the community, but it was it was the Wild West, so to speak. There there wasn't a lot of effort in marketing yet or uh, distribution, restaurant distribution, trade integration. There there just wasn't really a lot of outreach yet. So that was something I was really right at home with. And it sounds like you went on to help a few others um, get started. Oh, I heard your name just the other day when I was visiting Coleman Sellers. Someone said <laughs> that, oh, yes, I met her here when she was helping helping get this place going. Um, And Bending Branch too, right? Yep. And then Slate Mill. Yeah. So you've been around the block. There may be others, but those are the ones that (laughs) that I found reference to. Yeah, those are the big ones. Uh, So yeah, and you know, we, I, I just loved, it was so funny because uh, when I had left Bending Branch and, you know, I had the intent of taking six months off. And I get a phone call from Chris Brindrett over at William Chris, and he says, hey, friend, you know, this couple is opening a winery on Highway 290, and, you know, they really need somebody like you. And I was like, nope, I'm, I'm going to take a breather, and, you know, I just want to take a few months off and kick back and, you know, study for my next exam and all those kind of good things. And he just finished with, I already gave him your cell phone number and hung up. <laughs> <laughs> so not, it's too late now. Exactly. Not 15 minutes later, I had a, a conversation with Chris Cobb, who owns uh, Coleman Cellars. And, you know, I always laughed. He said all of the things that everybody says. You know, it was, I want to make top quality Texas wines. I want to be the premier crew of Texas. And nobody ever calls and says, hey, man, I want to be wildly mediocre. You know, it's all the same. So I, I'm kind of nodding along, and I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, okay, whatever. And he says, but I really want to change the way that we do tastings. And what I'd love to do is integrate a food and wine pairing educationally. And that was the end of my six-month hiatus. Uh, he had me with that single comment, uh, you know, and the proverbial hold my beer. Uh, I jumped right in with both feet. That was right up my alley. So that was that was really uh, that's a project that is still probably the closest to my heart. I had so much fun working with Jennifer and Chris. Say more about your approach to wine pairing. I know that you are are well known for making things come alive. Russ Kane wrote that you love food and wine pairing, and he said that you describe it as something like trying to recreate a first kiss. <laughs> yeah, that's a that is a direct quote. Actually, um, you know, I I love eating. I love I love food. I love all kinds of cuisine. Um, it's you know one of the joys in life that really touches all people. And you know, food and wine together, they're they're really just meant to be a marriage. And uh, one of the things that I always tell people, I find first and foremost, the knee jerk reaction is to really overthink it. And people really just tend to try to make it harder than it tends to be. And our palates are really quite simple. 
So I really like to take a really basic chemistry approach to the way that our palate reacts to food and its its core five principles and the way it reacts to wine uh, by the basic structure and how those components come together and more importantly, how they don't come together. Uh, we're actually, we have a, a winery, uh, a class at the winery that uh, we just launched tickets for May 8th and May 22nd uh, that focuses on chemistry of food and wine pairing all around snack foods. Oh, that's fun. I'm thinking sparkling wine and potato chips may may appear in your lineup. Um, yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> uh, you. You you must have heard that is my personal favorite pairing. Oh, it's one of my favorites too. I didn't know. I was just guessing, but oh, that's yeah. uh, that's definitely <laughs> one of my favorites. I always say that you know the the better the champagne, the dirtier the potato chips. Ooh, All you yeah. need is salt and grease. It's the perfect combo. That sounds good. So you you have a qualification or certification that I'm always thinking about seeking, which is the Certified Wine Educator through the Society of uh, Wine Educators. And I have all the materials to start studying for my CWE, but I have not pulled the trigger. What do you think is important or what do you think are the most important qualities for a wine educator? I always say, if we can't talk to our guests and make them understand how to love wine in their daily life more, we're failing. Uh, We could talk about science and viticulture and, you know, endlessly. And our guests walk away, you know, feeling that maybe they are a little smarter in one way, but not integrating that information into their daily level wine. So uh, for me personally, I just think it's really important to grab the information that we learn and make that science really applicable, Uh, make it applicable to the way we live. Uh, I, you know, years, many years ago, I had somebody approach me about uh, creating an app based around food wine chemistry pairing. And I started researching a lot of these apps and I didn't see this accessibility in what I was finding. And the joke was, you know, I, I ran through, you know, 20 questions and at the end it's it's telling me what to eat and it's telling me what to drink. But at the end of the day, I'm like, crap, I'm eating nachos. So we can still apply all the same principles to the food we eat every day, to nachos, to a cheeseburger, to potato chips, popcorn, um, that we would take and, and apply to, you know, an up tier restaurant, uh, you know, a, a chef produced cuisine. And they're really just the same driving principles. So making these factors really accessible to people that they can apply them to the way they live, that's important. That, that creates, you know, an environment in which people can love wine in their daily life and drink more wine ultimately. And, you know, be more adventuresome with their palate. And hopefully, like I said, it's just as important to avoid the bad pairings as find the good pairings. Yeah, that's true. I love it when people have a curiosity about wine. I mean, I'm sure you probably get at your place people who come in and say, well, I only drink X, Y, or Z. And I think, well, that's sad because there's such a big wine world out there. And if you if you don't try other things, and maybe you will land back at your same, you know, Merlot that you always drink, or it's probably not Merlot, it's probably Cab, let's be real. Um, but there's a big wine world out there. Yeah, well, it, there's there are infinite ranges of, of varieties. And, you know, here in Texas, we're experimenting with a lot of them. And that's a really great point. I had a conversation with a guest yesterday about um, this idea that we, we haven't picked a state grape. We haven't found our Cabernet as it is to Napa. And, you know, we talked about that for a long time. And, you know, I said, it, it's a big place. 
So why, why should we just really nail ourselves down into one singular variety that has to fit? You know, why, why are we trying to put this, the square peg in the round hole when we can be adventuresome and play with all these unique varieties? And the Texas palette, in my opinion, is one of the most adventurous in the world. You know, and like I said, coming into this community, in, you know, 2008, 2009, and, you know, the average wine drinker was still transitioning from sweeter wines to drier wines. We would have questions all the time about, you know, I've never heard of this grape. I can't pronounce this grape. What is Alianico? And once we put the juice to lips, we sold three times the amount of this grape that nobody had ever heard of than we did to Cabernet Sauvignon. So people were really you know, gravitating towards the best wine and not necessarily the wine they know. Now that works on both sides. Uh, one of my favorite guests at Rerooted, hi, Rebecca, uh, she fought me tooth and nail and I had to blind taste her on one of my new favorite wines in our by the glass list. And it just happened to be a cap, uh, Chardonnay. And she swore up, down, right, left and center. She hates Chardonnay. She would never drink it. And it has been her favorite wine for weeks now. So sometimes breaking out of your, your routine, that can be the best thing for you. I'm sure that's true. I noticed that several of your wines have fanciful names, so it doesn't necessarily list the grape variety, but I think you have one called Cable Car, so it may not identify the variety. Is that by design? We, you know, we wanted with our blended wines, we really wanted to have fanciful names that reflected the community that we were in. Uh, so, you know, our location, we're in the heart of Hemisphere Park in downtown San Antonio. Hemisphere uh, really came to fame in 1968 when it was the site of the World's Fair. So we wanted to kind of pay homage to that World's Fair history without being really obvious. There was an aerial cable system that ran side to side across the park, and two of the little gondolas from that original system still sit at the headway to the playscape. So our running joke is that, you know, pun intended, those two varieties are meant to glide along together. Hence, it'll always be our roan white blend is is the cable cars. Uh, one of our favorite blended wines uh, was a white wine, and it, it gives mention to my favorite ghost story in town and uh, the ghost tracks. So the story is that uh, there's a train crossing in which in the 1950s, a school bus full of children stalled and the children perished. They were struck by the train and the teacher, the only living survivor was a nun just to make it doubly more dramatic. Uh, anybody cringing out there right now, this never happened. It's completely <laughs> fictional. It's been researched, uh, but they, uh, you know, the legend, the urban legend says that the nun drove back to the tracks and parked her car over the tracks and wanted to join the children in the afterlife. And the children, the ghost, pushed her vehicle off the tracks to safety. So people for years have gone out and put baby powder over the trunk of their car and they put it neutral and they will absolutely roll off the tracks. Now, the reality is that it's on a geographic incline that's not visible to the eye. It's kind of a, a optical illusion. So it will roll. And if you put the baby powder on your trunk, you will see little handprints just by virtue that you've ever touched your own trunk. So those oils will come through, but it's a really amazing story. So that is a, a great story. We, we always say, you know, the, the right blend is, is always made by putting complementary components together. And we had a blended wine that just wouldn't marry 
we added a third grape called Fiano, and that was the grape that just pushed that blend off the tracks to safety. So we'll always have a ghost tracks. Uh, it'll always be a blended wine, but yeah, we, we just wanted to give a nod to some of the history. That's very cool. What is it about San Antonio that makes it an exciting food and wine destination? Oh my gosh, what isn't it about San Antonio? Um, I fell in love with the city. So part of our, our name, Rerooted, uh, my husband and I, like I said, we ended up here surely with the military, but once we got here, we knew we weren't leaving. So we wanted to uh, lay down roots. You know, we didn't like the term uprooted. That felt really disruptive. So we wanted to make a new home and lay down roots and start a business. And this was going to be a new home for us. We, we knew that we were here for longevity. So uh, Rerooted was born. Uh, that also tied to the history of the, you know, the winemaking, wine growing uh, industry. It's rural. And we really just wanted to tell that story, that rural story, in a more urban setting. So uh, San Antonio, it's it's really kind of a, a fun little grassroots community. There's a really adventurous spirit in our restaurants. Uh, our growth in our restaurants are often uh, uh, just sort of, I would say, gorilla from ground up, this gorilla marketing approach. And we've had some of these you know, James Beard winning restaurants in San Antonio for now a decade. And it's it's really changing the market in Texas, but it's it's a fun place to be. It's a really uh, spirited town. And that's what I fell in love with. I imagine that there are people from all over the world who come to San Antonio for military or for jobs or any other reason. And I bet people come with an international palate and many probably arrive at your place having never tried Texas wine. I know that you have a heart to educate them about Texas. And I know that you have some specific ideas about the um, visual impact of our label choices and what kind of environment we want to enjoy Texas wine. It's not always you know, the choices that our grandmothers would have made. They're more modern choices. And I know the design of your place is just uh, really well thought out. Tell tell us about your setting and um, some of the design choices you've made, both in the venue and then also on the wine bottles. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we one of the things I realized in a decade of working in, you know, distribution with small labels and trying to get you know, looking for this focus on Texas products. And one of the things that was lacking was that, and all these places that I found that were so focused on Texas wines were really uh, very much catering to a traditional feel. Uh, They had really traditionalized labels. They preferred that look. There was a lot of dark wood. There were boots. There were spurs. You know, it, it was this kind of Texas ranch chic and that was not my personal aesthetic. And, you know, I, I have been listening for the better part of five years now in conferences all over the world. We're, we're talking about losing, you know, this market share on certain demographics and some of the younger demographics that are coming upwards as our next generation of wine buyer. They're looking for, for something different. They're looking uh, with a, new, a fresher set of eyes. So we really wanted something that gave that really urban feel. We wanted something that had a real industrial sort of approach. Um, More importantly, in our bottling, uh, we made a very big decision very early on in our planning to put our wine in keg and sell reusable growlers. 
And this is really kind of a nod back to European communities that really enforce having filling stations in, in their wine communities for locals to come in and find very localized, affordable wines on tap for their everyday consumption. So we wanted something similar. Uh, we, we wanted to really take a very unique approach to the way that we were labeling and marketing. Um, younger, more youthful artists. Uh, we have a rotation of artwork in our location uh, that is really based in our Southtown neighborhood. Um, and we've gotten a lot of really phenomenal feedback for that. I was going to ask what the feedback had been from um, the neighborhood or the wider San Antonio community. It's been about a year now. Yeah, since you've been open, just over a year. Uh, Okay. Not only did we open in a pandemic, we opened during the freeze, so it was just absolute insult to injury. But uh, we made it through, and uh, you know, we there was not a lot of wine in San Antonio. As you know, an avid wine drinker, avid wine consumer. Our options on wine bars, much less local products, were little to none. There are, you know, only a handful of wine bars. So we, uh, you know, loved this location for its walkability. We love that we had such close proximity to our downtown tourism district. But what we really loved was that we were so walkable to an entire sector of the downtown living community. So we launched a wine club uh, very early on that focused on keeping things incredibly affordable in a monthly subscription sort of style. Uh, we gift our members a metal growler. That's a 750 milliliter bottle made for wine. And they fill it once a month, complimentary. And we've uh, oh, cool. got several several guests that come in. Uh, you know, most, most guests come several times a month and they'll do refills during that time at a discount. But we've eliminated a massive amount of waste. Uh, we estimate that our glass waste is reduced by 60 to 70%. Wow, that's incredible. So is everything that you offer there available in keg? Or do you have some wines that are only available by the bottle in we traditional both. style? Both? So okay. most of the wines under our label. We produce in keg, and then we use either, as a consumer, you can get a glass growler, which is included in your bottle price. Uh, we offer a return program on our glass bottles. Uh, on average, we get about three cases a weekend returned to us. So uh, we're seeing that's that's been really helpful, which for a lot of reasons, which I'll tap into a little bit in a moment. Um, we We also carry a bottle program that features wineries from across the state. Uh, including a small production wine that we do in bottle. When we do bottled wines, we only, on average, do 50 cases at a time. Uh, we work in conjunction, kind of a collaborative project with other wineries to produce a wine blend that sort of represents both, and that becomes very much a part of the storytelling of that specific wine. Uh, but our, the main main focus of our program is kegged wine. And so are these wines that are made at Slate Mill? Our first vintage we produced at Slate Mill. Uh, our second vintage we moved over uh, to work with Michael Barton, uh, who's at Helmy. Excellent. So they're they're a special private label for your place. Yeah. So we we produce our wines essentially through Custom Crush. Mm-hmm. So we bring our fruit in through uh, our the winery that we work with. We do our crush crush our fermentation or barrel aging everything on site. So we treat our kegged wines exactly as you would a bottled program. Uh, the only thing that changes is the receptacle at the time of mm-hmm. bottling. That's cool. And so then the smaller 
producers that you work with? Are you just looking to round out kind of your offerings so that you have various types of wine that you may not personally yeah. um, bring to market? So we, this project was always about education. So it's not solely about us creating our own label. It's, it's about showing guests our best foot forward with wine as a whole. So we put our wines on tap to make it really uh, accessible for our guests to either enjoy there or take away. We very much see that roughly about 50 to 60% of our guests, either tourists or locals, many of them, we were their first Texas wine, or many of them, we were their first really great experience with Texas wine. And this is their return. Uh, We uh, wanted to leave the Texas marketing off all of our outward marketing. Uh, One of the things that I, I really firmly believe in is anytime you argue from a point of defensiveness, it's it's an uphill battle. So we've been telling people, you know, in state and beyond for a decade, we're competitive in the world market. We're, you know, winning awards uh, by the dozens that are outpacing our national and international colleagues. And uh, we we need to stop explaining that. Uh, we're, we're doing it. We're, we're functionally doing it. And if we have to argue it, we're going to lose. So we want people, we know, we know that the quality's there in our label and in our colleagues. So we just want to put wine in front of people and let them be really excited and really shocked when they learn that it's Texas. So we opted to leave, you know, Texas off everything on the exterior and outward marketing and, you know, they come in and they can sample through Texas wines. And we very frequently have people that'll get two, three, four wines in and still ask, where's this one from? And we're like, it's all Texas. It's still Texas. <laughs> so they're shocked and seeing that excitement. That's that's why we do it. So even on your website, it doesn't say, you know, join us for Texas wine? We do. We we actually do. We talk about Texas in our social media. We talk about it in, in our website, but we opted to keep, you know, everything off of our facade, mm-hmm. our our local wines, you know, just stop in and fall in love with the place and fall in love with the service and fall in love with the wines and be really happy that it's Texas at the end of it. Well, I'm glad that people have been responding well. I have to imagine that you answer the same questions from folks again and again and again, (laughs) um, because, you know, people have a lot of questions about wine and when they find somebody who's a good listener and isn't intimidating, they just want to ask all their questions. Have you been surprised about any of the re- recurring questions that you get other than where's this wine from and being surprised that it's Texas? I wish I could say I was surprised, but I don't. I, I, I'm not any longer. And, you know, I told a story to somebody the other day who he was a very reluctant consumer and he came in and fell in love with the wines. He fell in love with, uh, you know, many of our, our friends' labels. And, and to your point previously, we carry a list of about 50 bottles from across the state. Anything from really, really small labels uh, that are producing a couple hundred cases at a time to our biggest producers in the state, like Becker and Messinahoff, that, you know, I still firmly believe, you know, are, are producing some of our best wines in the state. They're often just not the wines that you're going to find, you know, readily accessible or at the grocery store. So we like to show that entire range in between and let people find what they're in love with. And, uh, this gentleman came in and he had a, he had a, I, I'd like to think is a really great compliment. 
And he, he looked at me and he said, you know, it really shocks me that you're doing as well as you are. <laughs> Thanks, I, know, I think. I know. I, I know this comes from a place that, you know, he's a really loyal guest and he loves the wines. And he he's always convinced that Texas is going to be such a harder sell than it is. And and that's not always untrue. But yeah, you're, you are correct. We do hear a lot of the same questions, but I, I never get tired of answering them. That's good. And what is the price range of your bottles? I'm just curious if you ever get feedback on, I know wine bars are a bit different than, you know, there, there are a lot of ways to price wine and a, a wine bar was probably on the pricier side to begin with, but you get access to such great wines. But do you get feedback on how Texas wine is priced? Um, well, that's kind of a twofold question. It's kind of how Texas wine is priced. And then it's how we price our Texas wine. Um, we try really hard to you know, our, our markup is going to dictate that it's going to be at a higher premium than it is at the winery. But like I said, we, we really focus on finding wines that are not readily available everywhere. So making these wines, one of the comments we get really frequently, I, I love all of these wineries and I love going to the hill country. I don't have the time to go every quarter or even every six months, but I want to drink the best Texas wine all the time. Uh, so we really evolved our retail to go sales. Uh, very quickly. And that's become a substantial part of what we do. Uh, we have guests that just want to keep supporting Texas. And we try really hard to keep our prices very reasonable and, and keep them within reach um, of not exactly being wine bar pricing, so to speak. Uh, the wines under our label, obviously, we have more control with. So we've kept our pricing anywhere between 24 a bottle and nothing over 40. Okay. That makes sense. There are a lot of great options and within that parameter. Right. As far as education goes, you mentioned a class on uh, principles of tasting. Do you have other class offerings from time to time? Or tell me about some of your favorite either plans or things you've done in the past? We do. Uh, we just this last Wednesday, we had a sold out event uh, with the Texas Fine Wine Group, which includes Bending Branch, uh, Spicewood, Dukeman and Pertinalis. Uh, and, you know, we put up our tickets and kind of waited a bit and we were kind of waiting to get closer to the date. And, uh, Denise, their PR agent, she said, well, are you, are you going to put it on social media or anything? Why don't you send me all this stuff? And we put it up and we were sold out in 15 minutes. Uh, there was an absolute hunger for education and events in our area. Uh, so far we do, we do classes almost every other month. We typically do two to three seatings per class at about 20 to 25 tickets per seating and almost, almost exclusively they sell it to our wine club still. Uh, we're at this point just trying to find more time and bandwidth to expand on, on more events. That's excellent. And are there particular topics? I mean, I know it's all Texas, right? So that's, it's, that's on occasion we'll bring in, uh, international wines for these specific events. So mm -hmm. just to support the education aspect, we'll go, we'll go a little bit off board when it comes to the classes. Uh, we've done just this year, we've done a sparkling wine class that was specifically paired with uh, local macarons uh, from a local baker who so local lived in the building that we are actually oh, in. Cool. So uh, we've done chemistry of structure. We've done how wine interacts with your senses. Uh, we've recently did a blind tasting like a sommelier. Uh, we had... Uh, upcoming, we'll have a faults class, kind of exploring flaws and faults in wine. 
And our, like I said, our next upcoming class will be food and wine. What do you see in your, in your future? I know it's only been a year, but what, what kind of um, opportunities do you see with the community and specifically around uh, your goals for your place? Uh, you know, well, something that we haven't really talked about yet uh, that I wanted to kind of discuss a little bit is, again, back that idea with our kegs. I, I really fell in love with kegging wines really early on, and I had some really talented colleagues uh, like Daniel Collada, who's a Binovium Cellars, really opened my eyes to the potential with kegs. Uh, we jumped into this with both feet, but we experimented for years looking for the drawbacks, and quite frankly, I couldn't find them. Um, one of the biggest drawbacks is how do you serve? And, you know, we started with the Growler program, you know, we use, like I said, seven fifty milliliter bottles. During the pandemic, I was able to really experiment with growlers. And we basically bottled a case of a white, a rosé, and a red. And over the course of 18 months, opened a bottle of each every month just to see if the wine was degrading in any capacity. We saw nothing. We saw zero degrade over that period. So it's really an efficient way to uh, serve wine in the right community. I mean, it's obviously best when you're you're in a cityscape in which you have a lot of repeat guests that are bringing things back to you regularly. Um, but we had in 12 months, we're able to track our bottle sales in a way that we could see from our tap system exactly how many bottles we put into circulation and how many times each of those bottles is sold on average. So we estimate every bottle, every glass bottle that we purchase is sold on average four times. So that's amazing. As we're staring down, I have been taking calls uh, from friends and colleagues for the last three weeks uh, with glass shortages. So bottles, we're at a massive uh, standstill with bottles right now. And this is a really effective way to, you know, work around that I would love to see more wineries pursue. Uh, Not only is it ecologically friendly, it's, you know, financially friendly uh, when you can find a lot, find a situation which you have a lot of reuse. Um, It's, that's been a real game changer for us. But just what we pour by the glass or samplers, uh, we eliminated in our first 11 months, nearly 3,000 bottles from landfill that were just eliminated by pouring from the tap system to the glass. That's amazing because even if glass bottles do get recycled, there's not really a great um, yeah. return on that. No, you're right. And it's in every community. I, I really started researching that uh, back with Bending Branch. Um, Bending Branch was always incredibly forward thinking about their uh, ecological impact and sustainability. So we started to, I learned a lot about recycling and how inefficient it can be really during that process and uh, even moving forward out onto 290. And, you know, it's always heartbreaking to throw out hundreds of bottles a weekend. And even if they're going to recycling, wondering if that's happening and exactly how it's happening. It's estimated that in the United States, roughly 80% of our recycling actually goes directly back into a landfill. And uh, one of the things that we know is that Glass recycling, while it's incredibly efficient, is incredibly dangerous, which makes it inefficient to ensure. It's a, a really expensive process. So a lot of recycling companies, they ebb and flow with uh, recycling glass because it's it's just a difficult, difficult and costly thing to do. 
Yeah, including the city of Fredericksburg, which yeah. is crazy. So it's dangerous to the people that breathe in the particles or who? Yeah, what, it's, what about it's, it's dangerous? It's just it's a it's a difficult and dangerous process. I mean, it's you're you're basically crushing glass. Um, wow. We see the same very little of our glass production occurs in the United States. Most of our glass production occurs in China or Mexico. So even even glassware at the moment, we've seen a slowdown, a three to six month wait on glassware. So we're we're hitting a really difficult cla- time when it comes to products like glass and, and especially mm-hmm. single use. So uh, we're you know we're always happy to discuss you know kegging and the research. I had a friend of mine who's opening a similar project here in Texas call and, you know, with a deep sigh, she was like, tell me about kegs. <laughs> so definitely don't recreate the wheel, man, because we have researched this up, down, right, left and center. So we're always happy to share what we found with, you know, sourcing growlers, sourcing glasses, and we'd love to see more, more options in this direction. And did you say you have a metal growler? We do. Yeah, we have a stainless steel growler. Uh, that was produced specifically for wine. So it's a double wall stainless steel growler that our guests use once a month to do one complimentary fill. That's cool. And then the topper on it, is it the like the kind that kind of flips down? No, we actually opted for the two finger carry. So it, you know, it's kind of divoted so that you can carry it really easily. And, uh, you know, like I said, a lot of our neighborhood is very walkable. And we had a, a couple that came in, walked over from the neighborhood, and were kind of their little escape point from when they can get away for a date. Uh, they have several children. And uh, they told me, they said, we were on our way over here to see you and fill our growler. We passed our neighbors who have lived, you know, across from us for five years. And we, we know each other well enough to know each other's names, but we all waved and realized they were carrying their growler coming from you. We were carrying it to you. And they all sat down and had dinner that night, which was really the reason that we did this. That's Yeah, that's finding the community, creating the community yeah. um, that you were searching for in the beginning. That's beautiful. Well, and hopefully you're not working so hard that you haven't had time to find your own community. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we... Uh, I, I'm actually heading out to the Hill Country on uh, Wednesday, tomorrow, and, um, you know, to go out and work in the winery for a little bit. Uh, but it, I do my best to stop and see our friends along the way. I at least try to stop at one winery every single time I hit the, the 290 trail. So, it, you know, it's people, we always joke, you know, people ask, like, is this the sharks and the jets? Why do you all drink together? Is it competitive? And <laughs> the it's not. It's a big family. It's really a big dysfunctional family out there. It's great. I love it. I was excited to see that San Antonio is hosting a big food and wine event this fall in October. The James Beard Foundation and yeah. Visit San Antonio. Um, that looks like a tremendous event. And I, I have it on my calendar because I'd love to come down. Um, and I, I saw, too, that there are a lot of San Antonio restaurants um, nominated for James Beard Awards. We have a such a talented community down here. Now, I think it's his seventh nomination for Best Chef is uh, Steve McHugh with Cured. And it's it's an outstanding spot. And they've supported Texas Wines since the day they opened. Uh, I've had several SKUs there for years. And, and they continue to support Texas diligently. Is it something that you can see having a branch also in Austin, perhaps? Or uh, is that putting... 
too much pressure on growth? Are you just happy with just to have the one that you've got and be able to provide glassware? Exactly. Well, at this moment, I'm just trying to not let the first one kill me. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's the idea, you know, and, and part of the reason that we named it the way we did. Uh, we were all often asked, what is the 210? And that's the San Antonio area code. Uh, we trademarked our name with the combination of any area code. Uh, so with the idea that if we ever chose to expand, we could, we'd have a very expandable concept. So, you know, I don't necessarily know that we would want to have multiple locations uh, on our own, but um, we have had, we've had a number of inquiries about franchising. So that's something that we wouldn't rule out in the future. And not only have there been shortages of materials, there have been shortages of staff. Have you experienced that too? Oh my gosh, yeah. Uh yeah, we're good. we're hiring as we speak. So, uh just trying to get people back into hospitality. Uh has been it's been difficult. Uh we're really good friends. We have a stunning restaurant right next door to us. Uh Box Street Social. They do the best brunch in town. They're outstanding place. And it's we've kind of shared our woes over the year of just trying to reestablish and and get a team that, you know, was in it for the longevity. And uh, we're having this discussion with restaurant owners all over the, all over the city. And it's, it's a difficult proposition right now, but you know, we're, we're making sure that we're make making sure the time is very well spent when it's with us. Uh, so we put a, a big focus on mentoring and uh, education, sponsoring for certifications, uh, making sure that, your time is financially well spent there too. Uh, we we take a very close look at making sure that our our folks are are walking out with what they need. Mm-hmm. It seems like the trend is going away from uh, needing certifications. Are you a believer in pursuing certifications, or is that completely optional to you? It is completely optional, and I worked as a sommelier for. Years and years and years in a restaurant, and I first pursued my sommelier certifications with the quartermasters uh, out of a need for, or out of a desire to have better education about wine in the world. And uh, I always say that you know to take these exams, you've got to be, you know, a little bit, a little bit obsessive and a lot masochistic because they are really difficult and really time consuming. Um, I don't think it's mandatory. And I, I've, on the flip side, don't believe that just because you took the exam, it doesn't give you the experience that the job requires. So I, I've worked with a lot of restaurant sommeliers that haven't pursued certifications, and I wouldn't think even a moment the less of their abilities or their skills. So it's the certification doesn't make the experience, and the experience can only benefit from the certification. There's so much to learn. I think that's the most humbling thing about wine, right? The more you know, the more you realize it's a huge wine world and you'll never know everything. It's endless. <laughs> it is an endless pursuit. Um, and, you know, I know a lot of people, a friend of ours, regular customer comes in really frequently and he's uh, got a, a dental practice, clearly pursued a very successful career elsewhere. And he is, he loves the rabbit hole. He really loves that idea of kind of, you know, pursuing something that doesn't have that end line. So I think there are a lot of people out there that this is really beneficial for because it just continues to open, open new books, literally, and new 
topics of discussion and more knowledge. And it's, it is endless. Um, is there anything that you wanted to be sure and talk about that I haven't asked you about? You know, one thing we'd love to do is, is really invite our, our colleagues to come down and check out the community, check out the location. Um, I always invite people to come down and, and see San Antonio. It's not the San Antonio that a lot of people remember. Uh, we recently had a winemaker come down who is reluctant, and he asked me point blank, when did it get so cool down here? And <laughs> it's it's a great community. Uh, come down, check us out, check out our place, uh, bring me some wine, and, you know, let us let us talk about you. Let us send some people your way. Well, I've been rooting for you from long before you opened, and I was thrilled that you've opened. I can't believe it's been over a year <laughs> And I will get down there, but I'm so glad to know that it's going well. And I do hope that you're enjoying yourself and not working too hard. But what you're doing is uh, Texas wine is better for it. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, we couldn't, you know, we couldn't be more excited to be ambassadors for the industry. And, you know, it's, it's an industry that really deserves some face time and we're happy to give it. Thanks, Jen. You can follow Jen's Wine Bar on Instagram at rerooted210. Next up, demerits and gold stars. My gold stars go to two major educational events that are happening this spring. The first goes to Neil Newsom and everyone involved in Newsom Grape Day, which is happening on April 29th in Plains. Held annually since 1986, Newsome Grape Day is a grape symposium that draws grape growers, wineries, and industry professionals from all over Texas and the U.S. Neil Newsom brings in speakers who focus their topics on growing grapes, growing a wine business, and understanding industry trends. I was glad to see that this year's speakers include Dr. Dingara, the new department head of the Horticultural Sciences Department at Texas A&M, and Bending Branch founder Bob Young, who's leading a seminar on making red wines as big as Texas. There are other speakers who will cover irrigation, diseases, and many other topics of interest to Texas grape growers. And another gold star goes to the educational efforts undertaken by Michael McClendon and Wes Jensen of Sage's Vintage in Nacogdoches. Their fifth annual Sages Symposium will be held on Monday, May 23rd and Tuesday, May 24th. Monday's session is just for clients of Sages Vintage, but Tuesday is open for anyone to register. There you'll hear educational seminars followed by lunch and wine tastings. They've also got a great lineup of speakers that will focus on viticultural and winemaking topics and business issues for wineries, too. Tickets are $50, and I will link to that in the show notes. I'd love to get reports from someone who will be attending these events, so if you're going and want to do a quick segment on the next podcast, please do reach out. Moving on to demerits. Well, heck, if only I had enough cryptocurrency, I might consider buying a massive, modern ranch-style mansion in Austin. Rob Report is showcasing this $16 million estate that comes with its own vineyard and private wine label. This caught my eye because the house actually has a solar-powered vineyard with dozens of two-year-old imported Tempranillo grapevines. That's directly from the listing. It says the owners even created their own wine label through a partnership with a Napa Valley-based winery. Hmm. 
The current owners will reap the first harvest, but after that, there will be 200 to 300 bottles per year, and the new owner can label it themselves. And presumably, they could find a Texas winery to custom crush it for them. The current owner says, The reason we love our home so much is because of its proximity to all of our favorite places. We're five minutes from the Rough Hollow Yacht Club and Marina on Lake Travis and 30 minutes from downtown Austin. We're also 45 minutes from the edge of Texas wine country. You simply can't get a better Texas hill country location. So it's a demerit for claiming pride in your home's location on the edge of the Texas wine country, yet choosing a Napa Valley winery as a partner on your home's private wine label. Well, that's it for now. Get in touch. You can email me at texaswinepod at gmail.com. And I'm at Texas Wine Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. My goal this year is to cover the cost of my new podcasting equipment. You can read more about it by visiting thisistexaswine.com and clicking on the Support the Podcast tab. Thanks to Texas Wine Lover website for promotional assistance. Visit txwinelover.com to help plan your next winery visit. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode. I'll be talking with Michael Bilger of Adega Vino. Until then, cheers, y'all.